Let's turn together tonight in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue to think about the fear of God and the God that we fear. Tonight, talking about transcendent holiness. Isaiah 6, page 571 in your Bibles, there in front of you. Have you ever tried to describe the greatness or the skill of a, of a craftsman or a, a sports figure? I, I don't know what other examples you might want to use. If you have a, a certain sense of what it takes to perform a, a, a particular job or a craft or a particular sport, which is where we focus so much these days, you might find yourself inadequate to describe or to explain what it takes, how with the hours of training, the hours of, of work it takes to hone a craft. Well, that's perhaps a, a very inadequate way to introduce tonight's sermon as we talk about the holiness of God. How can anyone attempt to describe the holiness of God? I, I say along with the prophet Jeremiah, who am I? I don't know how to speak. I'm but a child. And that's how I feel preaching the sermon tonight. How do we talk about the holiness of God? I, I I, I, as I was preparing again, looking at tonight's sermon and the material I had, I, I thought to myself, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to preach this sermon, but you've come here tonight to hear a sermon, so we have ourselves a bit of a quandary. So what I want to do is I want to pray first off, and then we're going to look at Isaiah 6 and ask the Lord to guide us tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we come to consider your holiness, we are awed. We ought to be awed by your holiness. You are so far above us, indeed, apart from all creation as we've already prayed tonight. Now your servant feel inadequate to the task. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would encounter you as we hear your word tonight, that we would think upon your great holiness and that your spirit would work the appropriate response to this truth. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's look together at Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So far the reading of God's unholy word. People of God, when we look at the Bible's testimony about God, we're left in awe of who he is as he describes himself. He's not a greater version of us. He is completely other. He is not to be compared with us in any way. We speak of the word holy, and it's that which is apart, that which is separate from creation. When he reveals himself to mere creatures, the response is a holy fear, a holy reverence for him. When when a, a preacher tries to proclaim the holiness of God, he, he's struck with a bit of fear ahead of time. What am I going to say? How am I going to present the holiness of God? And you tend to, uh, uh, as you're working through a sermon during a week, lean on others and say, well, what have they said about the holiness of God? What, 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 what should I say? And, and then you come to the end of the week and you think, well, I guess maybe I've been leaning a lot on their words and trying to, to give their thoughts on the Lord. And then you think, well, That's not really the way I want to approach this subject tonight. So we need to look at God's Word, and I want us to understand the context of the coming of these words to Isaiah. And we'll get to that context after we've considered God's holiness in as much as we can understand it this evening first off. When the Hebrew language wants to emphasize something, it repeats it. And here we have in our text, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There's no other uh, uh, word used of God three times, but holiness, that he is to be holy. When the angels speak of him, what can they say but that he is completely beyond all of our Ability to comprehend. We, we catch a glimpse of him in his son, but, but far beyond what we can say or express. We would use italics maybe and, and, and in bold, uh, put bold and italics if, if we were to try to emphasize something. Here we read this repetition. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord exercises all of his power, all of his glory in in ways that are completely unlike anything that we experience. We might have a notion of justice. We have a notion of love. We have a notion of compassion and all of these other things that we share uh, with God, those communicable attributes. We talk of them, but he exercises them perfectly. He exercises his power with perfect purity. He's totally apart from sin. He doesn't act erratically. He doesn't abuse his power. He gives perfect direction to his creation. His his will is flawless. The the idea of God exercising power today is, is, is something that is not popular with people because the 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 big push today is that there is power that is oppressive. We hear about oppression and the oppressor and the oppressed. And so when we talk of God as having all power, 
not answerable to anyone. We immediately say, well, that's not going to go well because we've been, been led by our culture to believe that power must corrupt. Well, in man, it can and does. But in God, it never does. God is perfect power. Absolute power exercised in a way that is pure. We sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all your work should praise your name in earth and sky and sea. Only he is holy. There is none beside him. Perfect in power and love and purity. Well, the Bible talks of God's acts. It reminds us that whatever he does, he does purely. It's the best way I can think of to describe it is justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His arm of power is a holy arm. His promise is a holy promise. His name is holy. That's how he's described. His, he is holy in all his works. Stephen Sharnock, in his, in his treatment of the holiness of God, writes, Because holiness informs all God's works, his patience does not become indulgence for the sinner to keep sinning. His mercy does not become a fondness which ignores sin. His wrath is not madness for revenge. His power is not tyrannical. And he goes on and on and on for, for many pages in his work on the holiness of God. But what, what I want to communicate is that in his exercise of all of these things, he is beyond sinning. He is beyond abusing these, the, the exercise of these attributes. When we see God delivering his people, that great redemptive event back in Exodus chapter 15, that's a picture of how God delivers his people from bondage to sin and to their uh, their bondage. The Israelites sing that there is, they sing this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who indeed is like the Lord? And then at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 15:4, those who are victorious over the beast sing this, Who will not fear you, O Lord? Why? For you alone are holy. We would like to think of God as someone who's just an exalted or a, a better version of us, and yet we are prone to sin, prone to wander. The Lord is never wandering, never turning away from his perfect standard. Uh, Someone mentioned it this way. Well, it it was Jerry Bridges in his book, um, The Joy of Fearing God. He said, let's think again about Isaiah 40. When we were talking last time we were together, I mentioned Isaiah 40 and and how he used that illustration of uh, uh, the the, the tablespoon full of of water in the hollow of the hand representing um, our, uh, our finiteness versus God being the one who holds the, the, the waters of the world in his hands. Perhaps we could put it this way, he says, that the tablespoon of water in the hollow of my hand represents my holiness and the waters covering the earth represent God's. If the eight-inch hand breadth, you remember how we measure the earth, God measures the earth with his hand, 
If the eight-inch handbreadth of my hand is a picture of my moral excellence, then the entire span of the universe is a picture of God's. Now, that's, that's, that breaks down, of course, because our holiness is a given holiness. Our sanctification is something given by God. God is, God's is inherent to him. This, is, this isn't sufficient to mark the distinction, but perhaps it helps. He transcends all. Well, as I was thinking about what I wanted to say tonight, I realized, no, I have to scratch that. I, I, don't, I don't find it, uh, I, don't, I don't find it, it's, it's resonating with me uh, as I'm preparing to bring the message. So I wanted to look at the, the context of what is going on and as we compare uh, God versus ourselves. Isaiah chapter 6 What's happening? Isaiah writes in the first verse that King Uzziah has died. Now, you need, to know, you need to understand something about King Uzziah. He had been king over Israel for 52 years, and he had had a great reign in Israel. Second Chronicles 26, you can turn there and read about that. Second Chronicles 26, it speaks of his great reign. And he had become very powerful, very strong. As he sought the Lord, God made him prosper, verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 26 tells us. He went out and made war and was successful. He became very strong. His fame spread even to the border of Egypt. He became very strong. That, that repetition is there. And along with that, Uzziah forgot where he found his strength, where he found his power, his success, his prosperity. It was in the Lord. It says his, sprain, his, his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. There it is. It's because he was helped, verse 15, till he was strong. Then verse 16 says this, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense taking to himself what was not his. It was the priest's work to do this. When he sought to do this in anger, he stood over against the priests, and what happened? Leprosy broke out on him, for the Lord struck him, it says there. Why do I bring up that context? I think it's helpful to us when we we compare ourselves to God. We become, God blesses us, God gives us a a rich blessing, and we, we become confident in ourselves. God is not so great in our minds, in our estimation, as he once was. The danger of prosperity, the danger of success is that we then believe ourselves to be strong, ourselves to be great. What had happened in Israel? Going back to Isaiah, there in the opening of the the prophet Isaiah's words, it says that Israel had been reared of the Lord, but they had rebelled against him. Puts it, he puts it this way, the, 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 the image is this, verse 3 of chapter 1, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They've become great in themselves and they think, well, this is, this is a credit to us. And we see that in our own nation. We see that in our own experience. A boasting in what we have and what we've done, a pride in saying, well, they're coming to us for help. They're looking to us to deliver 
forgetting that what we have received is of the Lord and what we have been given is to be used for the Lord. We are to exercise, it, exercise uh, uh, wisdom in all that we do and all that we say. And when we are acting foolishly, that is against God's word, that power will be stripped, that greatness will be stripped. What is the attitude before a holy God? Isaiah sees it in, verse, or in chapter 6. There before him, he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. The greatness of the God is uncontainable. And above him stood the seraphim, and their attitude is to cover their face. Their attitude is humility before the Lord. Contrast that with the attitude of King Uzziah who, when he's confronted by the priests, becomes angry. The priest went to him, verse 17, with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And he was rushed out. He was a leper to the day of his death, excluded from the house of the Lord. What is our response before a holy God? Is it one of submission to his commands and to his decrees? Is it one of uh, submission to his word? Or do we take things to ourselves and find pride in ourselves. Well, the seraphim, the angels, knew better than this. They declared that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We can see his glory in the heavens, the psalmist says. There is no excuse for man to say, well, I don't recognize him. I don't see him. It is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness when we look around and we see the world with all of its beauty and intricacy and say, well, this simply is a result of chance, of evolution. That is a heart that has become hard to the glory of God, to the holiness of God, that he is one before whom we must bow. As we grow in our understanding of God's holiness, it leads us to greater and greater humility. He gets bigger in our understanding and we are humbled, but also comforted. That is the word that comes to Isaiah for the people. There in chapter 6, what God is saying is, I know the state of the nation. I know that you have lost a king that has been over you now for 52 years. But I am the true king of the nation, and I do not change. Live before me in holiness. Isaiah, when he reflects upon himself, for that is where we begin, when he reflects upon himself, says, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone a man of unclean lips. And then he says, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was too much for him. And we see that throughout the Scriptures. We can see that in the Old Testament. Those who see the Lord are undone. What a contrast to those who become proud in themselves. Think of Peter when he catches a glimpse of who Jesus is. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Brothers and sisters, revival breaks out where people have an understanding of who God is and worship him with reverence and awe in the splendor of his holiness, with humility. If we're dwelling in his presence, if we have a biblical fear of God, then we will hate sin and not try to excuse it or not try to outlaw it or to legalize it in the case of so many in our land today. Well, it's legal. The law says it's okay. Rather, we will grieve over the sin we find in our own hearts. We will grieve over the sins of the nation. We will recognize that we are ripe for judgment. Indeed, judgment has fallen, for we see wickedness is on the rise and the truth is suppressed and unrighteousness. We are being turned over. Ours should be an attitude of penitence to the Lord. Lack of courage, perhaps. Fear of man keeps us from calling people to repentance, to faith. The God-fearer is the one who repents of sin and is deeply troubled, troubled whenever he commits sin, knowing that it brings shame upon the name of God. Isaiah does not say in the presence of the Lord, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost in myself. I find no strength in my bones. I find no hope. My only hope is in the Lord. It brings him to the point of a fear, a a, a possibility of despair. And then the Lord, showing his great love, sends a seraphim to him, verse 6, and this seraphim had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched Isaiah's mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The Lord speaks of how He provides forgiveness. That too should lead us to a fear of the Lord. The psalmist writes that. He said, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But because there is forgiveness with you, You are feared. You are to be respected. You are to be seen with awe. How is it, Lord, that you could deliver someone such as me who sins every day? The Lord gives the word through Isaiah. He says, There is one who is coming. 
the one that I will provide who is of the flesh. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. But he says this of that servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. When we see that, when we hear that, dear people of God, we should be all the more in awe of who God is and give him thanks and praise for the deliverer that he provides. What do we see before the Lord? We see that he comes near to those who are humble and contrite. Listen to those words in Isaiah 57. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite, a repentant and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He comes near, and so we are humbled, asking him to come near. We are in awe as we look to him. And we give thanks to him for providing one who is our salvation, wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. When we see the cross, we see at the cross the defeat of sin, the curse of sin, but also we see how sin is to die in us and how we are to live for the Lord. Listen to how Paul brings the fear of the Lord together with a desire to live a holy life. He writes to the Corinthians, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're to pursue holiness as an expression of our fear of God. Isaiah sees what God has done. He experiences God's forgiveness and when the Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. That is to be our desire. That is to be our response when we think of God's work in our lives. To go and to tell. To proclaim his holiness, his righteousness, and his forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to flee sin as we heard this morning. To press on in new obedience. William Gurnall in his book, when speaking about holiness, uh, the Christian's armor, says this, pray not only against the power of sin, but for the power of holiness. A wicked man may pray against his sins, not out of enmity to them, or love of holiness, but more because they trouble his conscience, his peace of mind. He goes on to say, A zeal that seems hot against sin, but is cold to holiness, is a false zeal. When we are before the Lord, then we are humble, we are grateful, and we are also commitment, or committed to holiness to the pursuit of holiness, wanting to please him, to worship him with reverence and with awe. 
when we see what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are led to fear Him because of the wonder that is seen in the cross. Listen to what John Brown says. Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God in us as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. None of these excellencies darken or eclipse the other, but every one of them rather gives a shine to the rest. Herein we see the just judge, the merciful father, the wise governor. Nowhere does justice appear so awful, mercy so welcoming, or wisdom so profound. To comprehend then the holiness of God should leave us in awe, but should also provide comfort to us in the cross and lead to ongoing praise of our great God. Amen. Let's pray. O holy God, the sinless angels cover their faces in your presence. How much more should we who are but sinful creatures bow in reverence before your throne? You alone are holy. You alone are the transcendent, majestic God. You alone are morally pure. You are perfect light. In you there is no darkness at all. And yet through your Son you came to us as our Savior. You came not to pronounce woe, but blessing to those who trust in Jesus. Fill our hearts with awe because of your holiness and with amazement because of your love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we praise you. Amen.